Welcome to the CPTA podcast. Defining moment spotlights a particular moment, incident, or case that led the writer to a career in physical therapy or confirmed why he or she became a physical therapist or physical therapist assistant. This is the account in her own words and voice of Kathleen Wild, PT DPT, who practices in inpatient pediatrics in Houston, Texas on the inpatient rehabilitation unit. The first experience I had as a physical therapist with the death of a patient wasn't in an adult hospital wing. I wasn't surrounded by patients in their eighth or ninth decades of life saying quiet, tearful, yet entirely expected farewells to family. It wasn't as a student either. As a third year PT student honing my clinical skills on the adult gastrointestinal surgery and colorectal cancer unit in a large prominent hospital, I was quietly ushered away from such cases when patients began these slippery and sometimes rapid declines. I was moved to a different unit or a different patient for the day. You don't have to deal with that, they'd say dismissively. No, I was in a children's hospital. How unfortunately ironic that so many of my clinical superiors and trusted mentors found it inappropriate to expose me to such grave realities during my years of study, perhaps brushing it off as strategic protectiveness. But mere weeks later, as a newly minted clinician, ink barely dry on my new employee badge, I'm now expected to fully comprehend and effortlessly navigate the concept of a child's untimely death. I began my journey at Memorial just a month after graduation. I stepped out of velvet doctoral regalia and into a pair of scrubs and sneakers, eager and perhaps overzealous to heal and to experience and contribute to what it meant to be a therapist in this hospital. A position here had been my dream for years. During school, I went out of my way going home from clinicals to walk by the main tower on my way back to my car, looking at its colorful exterior neon lights. Someday, I told myself. I underwent a rigorous interview process at Memorial, consisting of a phone interview and two in-person interviews centered on a long series of situational interview questions. I don't remember the questions, but the nervous sweat stain on my interview shirt may well last forever. I was alone in my car when I got the call that the job was mine. I was calm and collected upon my acceptance. Yes, sir, what an honor. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I can't wait to get started. I hung up the phone and immediately dissolved into happy tears. I may have shouted. Through my rose-colored glasses, I imagined Memorial as a land full of whimsy and charm, a magical place full of happy medical people elated to treat the smallest humans, their sole mission to heal and simultaneously delight them. I learned I would be working primarily in the inpatient rehabilitation unit. Children are usually transferred to the IRU after their most acute phase has concluded, after the imminent threat of death has passed. These children usually come from more acute units such as pediatric intensive care, the medical surgical and oncology wings, and the emergency department. The bulk of the cases we see are traumatic or acquired brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, and patients who have undergone very long intensive care stays, which have a way of ransacking the strength and endurance from their tiny bodies. A child's hospital stay is often a family's own personal medical tornado, decimating everything in sight. Broken bones, damaged brains, and irreparable spinal cords are the norm here. To this end, a rehab therapist is a member of the storm cleanup crew, picking up the debris piece by piece, putting the house back together again, creating stability where there once was none. How do I sit up? How do I stand? How do I walk? How will I navigate school? And so on. While physicians and the nursing staff focus on medical stability, a therapeutic team focuses on musculoskeletal, neurologic, and cognitive stability and assists in regaining the ability to perform the movement and comprehension required for baseline level functioning. I met 18-year-old B and his parents on my second week in the IRU. As described in his medical charts, B was in a particularly gruesome car accident, leaving him with a severe traumatic brain injury. 
B was breathing on his own, but this was a new development, and the tracheostomy tube, once connected to a ventilator, remained in place. B, previously a typically developing, otherwise normal 18-year-old, no longer communicated verbally, only by using a system that the speech therapist devised of blinking once for yes and twice for no, and he only appeared to comprehend these instructions roughly half the time. He no longer had any volitional muscle control, which meant in addition to being completely dependent on others to move his body, he had no bowel or bladder control and the occupational therapist had been teaching his parents how to appropriately roll him in bed to change their six foot tall son's diapers. In his current cognitive and physical state, he wouldn't walk again and would require extensive amounts of equipment that wasn't free. He had two loving parents who had hardly left his bedside. I had seen cases like this before, and as a newly licensed clinician, I could rattle off any number of facts about the therapeutic clinical management of this patient, but my reality was that I had never done it on my own and didn't quite know what to say to this family. I was grateful to be a novice without that responsibility yet. The team decided that B had reached as high a level of functioning as possible for the foreseeable future, and it was time for him to discharge home. This happens often, I quickly learned, especially with devastating injuries like this one. The family underwent a short stay in the IRU for training in their new normal. Dependent transfers, diaper changes, frequent turning of the patient in bed to avoid bed sores, administering enteral feedings and medications, awareness for signs of an impending emergency, and the list goes on. On the family's final day at the hospital, we showed the parents how to maneuver B into and out of their suburban using a giant sling-like apparatus called a Hoyer lift. B wasn't feeling well and was neurostorming, or more formally, experiencing paroxysmal sympathetic hyperactivity all morning. In this condition, the nervous system has difficulty regulating, which is common following severe brain injury. In B's case, this resulted in agitation and severe abnormal muscle posturing that was making this transfer difficult. B's parents performed the transfer with him in the sling earlier this week, but they asked for further practice to feel more confident before going home. Since I was about the same height as B, he rested in his bed while I became the test patient for B's parents as they pulled their car into the front circle of the hospital. We worked for at least two hours. We troubleshot obstacles. I did my best to feign absent muscle function, dead weight, and zero head control while they practiced. I sometimes postured my legs into extension as is common with this injury, so the parents would know how to handle the scenario. They were meticulous and asked many questions to the lead therapist who was incredibly patient. I admired her direct, calm instructions to the family. They ran the transfer over and over until it was perfect and they were sure B wouldn't be dropped. All of us were sweating in the Southern heat, but I noticed a sense of pride in B's parents and what they'd learned. Though over the last several weeks, they had weathered an impossible storm and were facing an unimaginable new reality for their son and for their family. They beamed that he was coming home. Though I had done next to nothing, I too felt proud that I assisted in empowering them. I think I like this job, I said to myself. A few hours later, the hospital PA system sounded a loud alarm, three dings followed by three calls for a resident physician. This was my first experience with this alert and I was oblivious to its meaning. It designates a patient emergency requiring immediate attention with threat of death. In due time, the hair on the back of my neck would prick with every resident physician code. It happens frequently enough on a weekly basis to feel like a routine announcement yet still rare enough to stop what I'm doing, perk up my ears and whisper to myself, please God, not one of mine. On that day, physicians, nurses and other practitioners went running to the room I had left mere hours ago. It may have taken minutes or maybe it was hours, I'll never know. But by the end of the day, the news was all over the floor. 
B had gone into acute respiratory failure that afternoon and out of nowhere on the day of his discharge had died, just like that. I never met the real B, the B before the accident, the high school football player, the big brother, the grandson who was growing taller each year who could never quite escape the comments in jest about his astounding height, the son who perhaps proudly brought home crayon drawings from preschool for his mom, the friend who was a marvel with the Xbox controller who had great taste in music, the honor student, the piano player, the hockey enthusiast. The world will never meet B, the high school graduate, the husband, the father, the teacher, the lawyer, or the chef. I often struggle to describe what it's like to work in a pediatric hospital. The sad and overwhelming reality is that in most cases, we all know a B. There is a saying, where there are hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. It is meant as a warning to medical professionals to shy away from surprising exotic diagnoses where a commonplace explanation is more likely. I've never been good at implementing that advice because every patient on my caseload is a zebra, a one in a million, the chance brain aneurysm of an unsuspecting teenager, the cancer diagnosis in the fourth grader, the toddler intentionally abused, and the victim of a gunshot wound that left an otherwise healthy kid with no feeling below his legs. I see zebras all the time, and as an unhealthy result, I think about death all the time. I check to make sure my husband is breathing when I wake up in the middle of the night. I worry my headache is a brain tumor, despite being obviously dehydrated. I call to make sure the car made it to its destination. Sometimes the worry is so much that it wraps its greedy arms around my chest and squeezes so hard that it is impossible to breathe properly. A terribly ironic side effect in the midst of a respiratory-geared global pandemic. But in the panic moments, I remember that in this job, there are other zebras, children who should not be alive, should not have survived, and should not be walking the earth. Kids who have stared down death and laughed in its face, gone on to achieve great things, surviving insurmountable odds stacked against them. The beaten cancer diagnosis, the she won't make it, who is now walking out of the hospital. The patient with cystic fibrosis who wants to run a marathon. They are the reason I move forward the reason we all move forward and the thing that gives this job purpose and meaning in a place that is so often dark. It's been over two years and though the encounter was extremely brief, I think about B's family often. I think about their fortitude, their unblinking resolve to walk through a very difficult post-accident life with a highly dependent son, their unhesitating yes to all that their new lives would entail. I think about how jarring it must have been to have their reality change in an instant what it must have been like to leave the hospital despite all their grand preparedness to return to an empty bedroom and an empty seat at their dinner table. Their heartache remains palpable to me even now. I wonder how they are doing and I hope they have found peace. I hope as a physical therapist to make them proud and honor their son's life in the way that I treat other families. As I move through my career and through this pandemic, I am constantly reminded of the fine line between life and death. The pediatric hospital is a special place to be sure, but in a way perhaps less glamorous and more meaningful. It is an amalgamation of joy, heartbreak, and grit woven into the core of what it means to be human. People at their best and highest, people at their desolate lowest, raw and beautiful glimpses of the human experience. It is a dream job, a career that has taught and continues to teach me so much about the world and about myself, but not in the way I originally imagined. During a time that environmental disasters, a polarizing political climate, and a relentless pandemic are kicking us all to the pavement, 
I am grateful for a job that teaches me over and over that where there is despair, there is also great promise. Where there is heartbreak, hope always rises. APTA podcasts like this one are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.